Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. So we tried something a little bit different last week, which was having a live panel discussion on Zoom. And more than two dozen of you actually were on the call listening to Michael Philpott, Ellie Archer, Sina Carter-Tate, and Tim Jones have some discussions about leadership myths. So I'm not going to spoil what they have to say. Each of them had some really interesting insights. And really, one of the themes that came through was this idea of lifelong learning, because all of the things that they talked about really came back to this idea that myths exist, but we can take proactive steps to actually learn and grow. If you enjoy this, then why not share it with somebody else? Post about it on social media. It's a great session, and there's a lot of great content, so the people who listen to it as a result are very likely going to thank you for telling them about it. And if you're new to the show, then why not hit subscribe? And don't forget that there's more than 275 other interviews in the back catalog. Now let's get straight into this session. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome a whole bunch of you to Seeds Podcast, a live panel episode where we're going to be looking at leadership myths. And we've got four amazing panelists here. We've got four quite different voices, quite different perspectives on this idea of leadership myths. And this really originated from a post on LinkedIn where I'd said something about personality tests and then got a whole bunch of comments from people saying, well, actually, they're not actually worth much. Um, And it got me thinking, what leadership myths do we believe? What is it that we think is true, but maybe it isn't? So I've asked some friends here, and actually three of them have been on Seeds before. So we've got Michael, Tim, Ellie, and also Sina. And we're going to be going from person to person. They're going to share their leadership myth, something that they've noticed in what they do. We're going to have a brief chat about that. And then we're going to move on to the next person, then have a discussion amongst all of us. Obviously, you know how to use the chat function with Zoom these days. So feel free to type in comments as we're going along. I'm sure that the panelists would love to see your questions and we'll get to as many of them as we can. So first up, I'd like to invite Michael Philpott to share. Um, Michael, you've been on Seeds before and we would love to hear something from you about some leadership myths that you've observed. The leadership myth, I was actually going to come at it with five myths that really kind of irritate me with uh, the work I'm doing coaching, but I just had a meeting the other day and this myth presented itself. So I thought I'm going to take this one, which is people in leadership roles are naturally by default expected to be really good at public speaking and uh, presenting and facilitating. So the myth around that is uh, perpetuated by the more you get elevated in your role, just you should become really good at speaking. So my question, and this kind of goes out to uh, the people on the panel, and it kind of goes out to the rest of you, um, you're all good speakers, and I know that, but by by raise of hands, I'd like to say, to see how many people on the panel, or even in in the group here, have had professional training in public speaking. Raise your hand. Cool. Four. (laughs) Nice, which is what I thought, right? So... And uh, that's because because of the work we do. So my next question has to be, uh, where in your professional toolbox, those of you who have had professional coaching around speaking, presenting, and facilitating, where in your toolbox of your skills? So, for example, Stephen, you're a, you, you know your law. That's your primary. That's a given. But outside of that, what's the next kind of skills, and where does speaking fit within your toolbox on a scale of one to ten? You know, 10 is here. So that's like the high, you know, after after your law, this is, you know, 10 or it's a one. You know, it's very minor. For those of you who have had professional coaching, is it a 10 or is it a one? As in after your actual skills. So Tim, it's a 10 in your toolbox. So, yep, we've got a seven, eight, sorry, five. Yeah, nice. Cool. Two, two in the toolbox. Nice. Cool. Okay, great. So out of everyone that's here, the majority of what I'm seeing is that for most of us, it's pretty high in our toolbox that we need to use for our work outside of our primary um, qualifications or experience that we have. 
which is really weird that it's ranked so high, and yet for most of us, we don't get taught it in school, in college, and I was astounded to find this out recently from a friend that you don't even get taught it on an MBA, which can cost you anywhere from thirty-one dollars to $50,000. And yet for a lot of us, it's one of our highest, most necessary skills after our primary skill that we're going to be using. So that leaves us with um, basically we're dependent on the organization that we work for or supplying it or we're dependent on ourselves for going out and resourcing it and paying for it for ourselves. And I'm, I'm wondering out of everyone here, especially those that ranked it high or those who have had professional speaker coaching or presentation coaching, by show of hands, how many paid for it yourself? One, <laughs> one, one, one person paid for it themselves. How many people had it uh, through, through work? Some sort of coaching. Four, three and a half, five, five, five. So around about five people had it. That's pretty low considering the amount of uh, uh, the amount of emphasis we put on the value of it. So that's kind of strange in itself. So if we if we're not getting it through work, if we're not paying for it, then it means that we're learning by default from our teachers, our lecturers, or our professors. And to be honest, I don't know if their style of speaking is perhaps the kind that we might want to be emulating. Um, so from the work that I've seen, some of the people that go through that process, you know, they learn through those people, they turn out okay, um, they'll get up, they'll be happy to deliver presentations and talks or facilitate things, and they kind of pull it off. And I think they pull it off because one, they have a natural amount of empathy for other people, and two, they have a natural desire to upskill themselves in some way, shape, or form, whether it's watching videos, reading books, or actually going along to some training. But from what I'm seeing, that leaves a whole bunch of other people, and these are the people who are more than happy to stick their hand up and get up and speak every opportunity they can, but from my experience, they tend to be the people who are doing it for the wrong reasons. They like authority, and when they speak, they become an authoritarian figure. And if this is happening in a workplace, um, it stifles creativity and expression in other people because they get shut down very quickly. And that is a discussion I was recently having in a meeting. So I'm seeing that very frequently. To finish all that off, the problem I'm seeing and hearing a lot about, especially with the work I'm doing, is that, and I, you know, I take it for granted that there are degrees of people with comfort with speaking, maybe because I'm biased with the work I do, but more and more I'm hearing that people would, if they were offered uh, an increase in their role, like with more pay, uh, more responsibility, if that meant that they had to speak publicly, do presentations or do facilitation, they would decline taking the role. If they were put into that role by default into a higher role of management, they would look to quitting their job. The idea of public speaking makes them physically feel sick. So that to me is kind of like, I think that the myth is that uh, by nature, the higher you go in your leadership roles, the more inclined you are to be good at public speaking. It's a load of rubbish. There you go. That's my speech, my talk, my, my five cents worth. I really like that because... I think you're right. There is an assumption that as you go up in a chain that, that you're just naturally going to be a good speaker. But that was a really interesting um, statistic. You know, how many people on this call have actually had that sort of professional input? Um, I have two, two things. I have one question for you. One comment is actually when you think about speaking, it's something that we do do every day. And it might be, we think of speaking as like, oh, getting up on the stage. You know, there's a hundred people out there. But actually, if you're meeting with one other person and having a conversation, those are skills of speaking as well, aren't they? Um, yeah. And I think that's something that we kind of forget. And therefore, we don't focus on it as a skill to be learned. And my question for you is, you know, you've taught a lot of people now as basically the premier speaking coach in New Zealand. Like I've seen the TEDx talks and the people that you've instructed. One of the things that I think people assume is that when you see someone on stage, that it's just all natural, that it's just coming out, you know, just, they're just amazingly good at speaking. But I've noticed, because I've heard some professional speakers before, and actually you start hearing 
the same stories coming up over and over. Um, do you want to just comment on that? Because that's an interesting thing to me. Oh, those, those are really good, really good points. So, uh, yes, most of the people I've coached are extremely natural after about 10 weeks of prepare, uh, preparation and practice. They're perfectly natural. Um, so I think Lilia Tara, who has become the most viewed TEDx talker in New Zealand, fifth most viewed on the planet, over 11.5 million views. Um, Lilia came in late to the game for preparing for an 18-minute talk, and we literally had 10 weeks to prepare, which is a short period of time, and we were coaching uh, one to two hours a week, every week for that entire duration. So that's the, the level of preparation that needs to go into it. But we're going to move to our second panelist. Um, so if I'm just checking that everybody's here, yes, everyone's here. So Sina Cutter-Tate, I'd love to hand it over to you. Um, maybe if you could just give us a, a brief word on your background. I know you're a director. You've been involved in engineering for years and years. Um, and uh, But we'd love to hear what you see as a leadership mess. Over to you. Namahi, uh, Stephen. Kia ora te My name is Sina. I am an engineer by trade. I'm a professional engineer still um, from time to time. Uh, I'm also a director and I serve on a, a number of boards. Um, and I'm not quite sure what qualifies me to be on this podcast. I certainly don't consider myself uh, any kind of a leader. And going after a professional speaking coach is, is not great for my nerve levels either. So thanks for that, Stephen and Michael. But I, I really enjoyed that, that talk. It was um, There's some relevance to the topic that I wanted to talk about today, which is um, kind of born out of some recent research I've done as part of my um, PhD thesis. Um, so the myth that I wanted to talk about was our relational capability as something you either have or you don't. So what, what I'm talking about here is the ability to manage relationship capital. Um, and the myth is that organisations don't promote or uh, recruit for this skill. Um, or, but if you look at their job ads or their internal HR performance systems, again, you won't see relationship capital capability in there. But it's there. We do it all the time in our organisations. And in fact, some of the leaders that I interviewed for my PhD research called it, uh, well, they, they regard it as their apex capability. They regarded it as absolutely key um, to their success in their careers, um, to their ability to lead others, to their ability to influence um, and to, to move upwards and laterally in their careers. So it's an incredibly important skill to have. Um, it's just that, that it's a bit hidden and we, we don't like to name it because we uh, can't measure it. So um, I guess if I just expand a little bit about what I mean by relationship capital, it's a form of capital, right? It's just like any other form of capital, like uh, financial capital, knowledge capital, inventory. So it's a resource that can be developed and drawn on. Um, and like any other source of capital, it requires capability to manage it effectively. It's an incredibly useful tool for conflict resolution, for managing risk. And if you're in the construction management game like me, it's arguably the most useful tool in your toolbox. Uh, for you know, trying to manage projects, trying to uh, bring in um, projects close to budget and close to timeframe. So the question here is um, that I started with with my research is what does a person with strong relational capability look like? Because one of the reasons we don't have it in some of our organizational frameworks is that it's hard to define or it's hard to measure. Look, it doesn't look like people who are assholes, obviously. It doesn't look like self-promoters. It doesn't look like extroverts or people who always tow the company line. That's probably... Um, that, that's probably self-evident. Um, and it doesn't look like people who are technical gurus and experts either. Yet organisations typically recruit and promote for these kinds of things. Um, we put in place systems that are, you know, um, for things that can be measured quantifiably. We ask for people's CVs for their years of technical experience, you know, and we let our HR managers design performance systems with KPIs that are linked to margin and sales numbers and profitability. Uh, productivity targets, you know, all kind of quantifiable stuff. Um, but people with strong relationship capability also don't look like people who are really, really nice or really, really generous or necessarily very social, um, which is a little bit counterintuitive. What I found is that people with very strong relational capability um, look like a set of attitudes and behaviours. Yeah, it looks like reciprocity. It looks like reliability. It looks like consistency and flexibility. Um, it looks like a commitment to a relationship and courage for shared um, risk-taking and shared understanding. So um, people with this kind of capability, I found, invest in relationship capability consciously. 
they, they invest in the relationship like an insurance strategy so that they'll be able to call on it later on, you know. Um, and sometimes it means moving in sort of some gray areas, which is where the courage piece comes in and the commitment piece comes in. And that's all about building trust, which is the kind of thing that relationship capability is really, really um, nourished by. What I found when I talk to leaders you know, who were really, really good at this stuff is that they learnt it at the knee of experienced and senior people early in their careers. You know, and that's a little bit like you know, um, the oral tradition, which is particular to lots of indigenous cultures. In my case, I've, I've got some Samoan ancestry and the oral tradition, handing down wisdom from elders to, to younger people is very much a part of that. And that's kind of what we're seeing here, even in sort of very Western places like boardrooms and uh, dare I say construction um, offices. So these guys, these leaders know how important the skill is and they instinctively see it in others and they pass on their wisdom to their chosen mentees. I have an issue with this around equity of access. You know, what about those of us who don't happen to work with leaders like this? What about those of us who don't have access to mentors uh, like this? And this kind of brings me to the myth that we can't develop this capability in people. Um, we can't develop these attitudes and behaviours in our workforces and organisations. The science says that we can. Yet when was the last time you ever saw a course for relationship, relationship capability or saw it as a KPI in your performance and um, REM plan? What we do instead is we talk about it in euphemisms. We talk about people being a people person or having really good EQ, uh, being a very good uh, collaborator, collaborator or communicator. And we kind of rely on these informal and these invisible systems to pass that wisdom down within our organisations. So yeah, the science says that it's a bit like charisma, right? The science actually says that this is a capability that can be learned and it can be developed and it starts with attitude and self-awareness and coaching. So yeah, so that was kind of my point. These uh, visible written processes that organisations still operate um, kind of ignore this really, really important um, skill that we know instinctively is important and that's because we buy into this myth that it can't be measured and, and it can't be coached. So that's my all open to open to questions, Stephen. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to reading your um, your thesis when you eventually finish it. That, that sounds amazing. You're really not. It's really long. It's really <laughs> dry. But I appreciate the kind words. <laughs> well, I'm glad we got the summary. Then um, people can drop questions in the chat. Um, I have a question. It's, well, the first observation I'd say is I'm thinking back to my university days. So I studied, I have an accent, but I studied at Canterbury University and, you know, that was where I was. And, you know, there, there just, there aren't courses, are there, that, that talk about this type of thing. It's all, you know, sociology 101 or laws 101 or history 101. And there's not that sort of course that says actually relationship building, empathy, understanding situations, like it's such a critical thing. And yet we, it, it becomes something that isn't actually taught within our higher education or, or secondary or primary. And I'm just curious for those of us on the call who are interested in learning more, what would you say would be an avenue for us to be able to start embracing it? Or, you know, is there a course you've come across or what would be the first steps to really opening ourselves up to that? Yeah, I mean, um, I kind of struggled with this as, as well when I was kind of embarking on this research and trying to do some writing around it. There's a, there's a broad sort of um, area of literature in the academic world that kind of touch on it in lots of different ways. But kind of like I said, I mean, I, I think um, courses that help you think about your attitude and think about your self-awareness are a really good place to start. Um, so things like, you know, Dr. Ian Brooks, for those of you who've heard of him, who goes into personal skills development, where you really get an intense understanding of how you come across to others and how others respond to you. That's, that's um, the kind of thing that can be really useful. Um, and this sort of thing also seems linked to experience. And so, you know, perhaps there's someone out there who can offer some, you know, practical applied training um, approach, like a series of field situations where you can sort of try out interactions and, and conflict resolutions and begin to build your capability in that way. Um, but in terms of courses out there, I haven't ever come across any. No, it, seem, it seems to be maybe a gap in the market for someone enterprising out there. Yeah, it seems like it. That's right. It's, it's fascinating to me. Um, I see Michael from Kilmarnock is on this, um, this session here. And the first guest on Seeds was Michelle Sharp, um, who at the time was at Kilmarnock. And I remember going and visiting her and interviewing her. And we walked around and she knew 
every single person's name. And, you know, there was a hundred people and she had conversations with every person as she walked around. And she, to me, a shout out to her, because she's an example of somebody, I think, who's able to embody that recognizing how important relationship is. So thank you very much for your Correro. And uh, hopefully we'll get uh, some questions in here. We'll, um, we'll see how we go. Um, but we're going to switch over. Um, we've got Tim Jones, the Grow Good Guy here. Um, Tim, we'd love to Hello. hear from you. Um, and you've, I think this is going to be like your sixth time on Seeds. So you're really <laughs> hugging the limelight. Sorry. You're, you keep inviting me back. <laughs> it's, not I like know. <laughs> it's my own fault. But you are here. We'd love to hear what you think on this topic of leadership myths. Cool. I definitely um, would like to pick up on what Cena was saying. And I think, so my degree was in medieval history. I just think that's it's that kind of stuff that we're losing this whole stem you know science 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 we, we've lost that connection to the softer side of um, education i feel so i think there's just something maybe we can peg that and unpack that a little bit later um i think there's also well there's kind of two myths really one is a really sort of low-level flippant one and that is based on my experience of having worked in global multinational corporations um, and having also trying to infiltrate them to sell you know, my work to them is, is there's a massive myth that people actually know what they're doing in most of these large businesses. Yet most of them are faking it till they make it. Um, and the actual depth of knowledge about what's happening within the company, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. If you ask them all to choose the same color on the same day, that no one could, there'd be no agreement. It's just an absolute basket case. And I think a lot of people in smaller businesses have this impression that you know these monoliths these massive corporations are so you know like nailed down and and, and fully you know locked in actually most of them are running despite themselves um rather than you know actions that they're that they're actually undertaking so shout out to all the small business owners that are you know doing it tough out there and thinking that, that you've probably got way more processes than happening in most of the big businesses so that, that was kind of a bit of a flippant one just to throw out there um but I think that's more broadly, I think, you know, for Michael, having hung out with Michael probably way too much in my life anyway, um, you know, selling training and coaching in New Zealand is quite hard because people would rather buy the machine that goes bleep that can increase productivity by 5% rather than take a risk on, you know, maybe we could um, upskill our team here and get a 7%, um, you know, uptick in productivity, uh, because, but we're going to play with their heads. I guess more pertinent to me and, and what I do is I would say that the purpose myth is probably the big thing. You know, B corporations are on a massive rise. I am just inundated with people wanting to work with me to help them become a B corporation. And there's, I think there's a real myth out there that we can do purpose work really quickly. And it's about getting a slick marketing team in to come up with, and basically we're going to take our, our vision and mission statement and we'll just convert it into a purpose statement. And it's all rainbows and unicorns. But I think this also um, links back to what Cena was saying. I think, you know, the person, the true development work that individuals and organizations need to do, you know, this is where we get into the deeper Jungian psychology stuff is you've got to go and look at the bad stuff that you're doing and you've got to work out why you are who you are and what's, what's driving the behaviors and attitudes of who you are today as an individual or an organization and recognize that and deal to that. And then you can go on the journey to work about, you know, where, where the gold is, where the go and slay those dragons to go and unlock the gold as, as is the hero's story told in all the great movies. So, um, yeah, that, those are sort of my two myths. I figured, why not? Let's go for two. I'm happy to end it there and let um, Elle jump in on, on, unless you've got questions, uh, Stephen, more than likely being cross-examined. It's like you've been cross-examined by the lawyer here. I feel very much <laughs> under pressure. <laughs> yeah, you gotta watch out, right? <laughs> no, but I, I, I mean, it's really just a comment that I like what you're saying because the the big danger you didn't use the word, but social washing, like how yep. how I think there is actually a real danger there that that we need to be aware of, and probably those of us on this call are aware of it. So we're kind of preaching to the converted here, but the idea that you can um, come up with a really, you know, unicorn and rainbows and everything's fine in the world mission statement. Yeah. And actually, and we've talked about this before, Tim, actually your product is helping to damage the environment or, yeah. you know, cause obesity in children or whatever it is. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like that disconnect between yeah, the mission yeah. and the, yeah. Totally. I mean, I, th I think, um, I won't name names, but there's a really big box retailer that most people will know um, who, you know, during the first lockdown thought that they were essential 
were told pretty quickly, actually, we don't think we are that essential to humanity, who are doing a lot of advertising currently about how sustainable they are and all the good things that they're doing and, and how they are improving their sustainability from a pretty low base. Yeah, all their advertising is around, you know, look at us, we're doing so much good. And it's like, but are you really? Like, can we can we really measure that? Um, the same company had an advert where they were talking about the amount of money that they donated to charity over the their existence in New Zealand. And I've got I get a shout out to Loudon Kerr, good, good mate of mine. Um, one of his favorite expressions, you know, he does a lot of fundraising work in the not-for-profit sector. And um, we were working with doing some both things of work for the Harpi Access Card charity. And one of the someone connected to the charity said, oh, I managed to get a thousand dollars from this fairly well-known, quite wealthy person in Christchurch. And Loudon just turned around and said, that, that's meaningless. It's not what it's not what you gave, it's what you could have given that counts. And this person's a multi-multi billionaire, and they gave us a thousand bucks. And it's kind of the same with some of these big box retailers. Uh, look how much money we're giving to charity. It's like, well, if you some if you total the amount you're giving up annually, it's less than what your CEO earns. So it's like, are you really doing as much as you could be doing? Um, so I think there's a lot of that happening out there right now. Um, it's only going to get. Um, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I think they're going to be, I guess, to, to use the um, 1990s phrase from a British real estate market, gazumped. Um, people will be gazumped when other retailers and other businesses who are genuinely doing it and can prove the good that they're doing come in and go, well, actually, like we've got a certificate. We can prove it. We've been verified to be doing the stuff that we're doing. So, um, yeah, and I see... Um, a couple of comments about you know the director's duties i know stephen's uh, written a couple of articles that's trending right now with dr duncan webb um there's some legislation coming through for b corporations where they now have to basically alter their constitution to uh, um, uphold purpose um uh, uh, you know in, in alignment with whilst also trying to make a profit so there's a, there's a lot of movement happening in this scene. i think it's going to move pretty quickly where suddenly some some businesses can be left left behind um pretty quickly yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Echo, 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 echo. Yeah, the echo chamber. <laughs> but the um, it's interesting that you know I've been keeping an eye on the the company law because that you know unfortunately that interests me. <laughs> but you've got this section one three one, which is about directors' duties, and this this bill that you're mentioning, and I've just put a link in there. You know it's actually proposing that directors need uh, may consider these other considerations. Mm. And so I think that's actually an example where there is change that's going to happen because yep. it's got labor caucus support. It's probably going to get there. So how can we help to get it even further so that it doesn't say may, it actually says you must consider must. some of these things. Yep. So fascinating area. Thank you so much, Tim. That's awesome. No, We're going to turn to our last panelist here. Ellie, do you want to, dive in and give us uh, things that you're seeing from a leadership perspective. Kia ora, tēnā koutou e Loving the kōrero, and uh, what I've got to say actually is just going to flow in uh, nicely because it, it is to do uh, with the interpersonal side. So uh, my myth uh, to dispel is the fiction that leaders have it together always. So um, the uh, leaders are 24-7 awesome, everything is awesome, leaders are born this way, um, and that self-efficacy is for perfectionists only. So I, I really, um, to begin with, I'm actually going to share a very personal, possibly amusing internal monologue. Um, that I wrote down post a high-level regional meeting, uh, and it may have been a board meeting, so just saying. Um, so I'm going to allow myself to be a bit vulnerable with you all as I share my internal monologue. So to set the scene, uh, it was a Friday afternoon after a very long day and a week in lockdown. So cue Ellie's head and action. Oh, my God, where are we right now? Oh, yeah, yeah, back to this again. Focus, babe. This is a serious issue. Don't be a dick and pull your head into the detail. Come on, come on, come on. This dude is so smart. Shall I add on to his point now or let it settle? No, 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 no. He's got it. I'll just be repeating his point. Let it go. Hang on a second. I, I actually do have something to add. So stop there with a the monologue. I write it down. It looks good. And I table my thought back into monologue. Okay, so um, I think it was well received. Uh, did it land like I wanted to? Meh. 
Uh, oh man, I should have made the point about systemic versus system. That would have helped me bring the outcome piece home. So the meeting then finishes. Uh, good banter posts the meeting. Uh, so now I'm driving home in my car and this is what I'm thinking. Dude, you could have said this better. You could have shortened it. You could have simplified the context. Um, you didn't say what you wanted to when the time came. Why? Why did you chicken out? Or did you choose the war over the battle? A few minutes passes. Did I add value? Yep, I added value. Could I have done it better? Yeah, totally could have done it better. Is it already done and now, now need to reflect to do it best better next time? Yes. So this is a personal example of what goes on in my head. And there are many other things, but this is a G-rated channel and I don't want to share those... Um, um, full-on bits of language sets that sometimes go in my head with meetings. We, we are not, it takes work to get to where we're going. It takes work to enable us to table um, the things that we need to table around um, in some of the rooms and spaces that we're in. So there is a direct correlation between um, my signature strengths ecosystem um, uh, our challenges as our strengths are generally the foundation to aiding self-improvement and self-efficacy practices. Uh, my strengths are core to my value proposition and aid me to be a purpose and people leader um, with interpersonal sensitivity and resilience as enable, uh, enablers for high level leadership. I have a leadership practitioner's kit that I update constantly um, and as I evolve, my kit does as well. So I wanted to share this with you. My current plan up is made. Uh, my my current plan is made up of uh, personalized profile information, um, a development practitioner's calendar where it's got coaching and all that kind of stuff that I go through. Uh, it's made up of a, my model of practice and why. That is um, the core stuff remains the same, but there's some things that um, that adapt as I do my experience, uh, research and learning resume, uh, reflective insights, value proposition, my futures learning list, so the things that I want to learn, um, and of course, um, my overall leadership development plan. I'm going to share with you very briefly uh, one development objective of mine, and, I'm, and once again, I'm gonna be vulnerable with it. Um, and each objective has a goal, uh, self-efficacy mitigation, implementation, reflections of barriers and enablers, challenges, progress, growth, new insights, deadlines, and next steps. So um, this is straight out of my leadership development plan. Um, the objective is to develop my, and I've got lots of them, but this particular one is to develop my psychological practice to better enable performance in dealing with varying group dynamics, characteristics, and behaviors. The goal for this particular objective is to validate my voice and point before speaking. The reflection that I have of barriers and enablers for this is at times I'm not confident that my experience or lack thereof validates my reasoning and this stifles my voice around the boardroom table. The self-efficacy plan I put in place is I need to bring consciousness of my insights to my practice um, by increasing self-check-in points and internal evidence during interactions. And I also have a coach that I'm currently working with that's aiding me in this space. The challenge that I have is um, I always tend or have always, I'm starting to age up now, be the youngest in the room. Um, and so there's a judgment in that space. But once again, that's changing as I age up. And my progress and growth, um, so this is six months down the line, I, I track my progress, is writing down and validating my approach before I table something as enabling confidence, but it still needs work in high level spaces. My next steps in development is um, I have a reset in, in place, which proactive planning and preparedness have been added to um, my practitioner's kit for continued evaluation. And I suppose. With that said, in summary, it, it takes time reflection and real-time self-awareness uh, to be a leader who adds value, engages, and holds themselves to account. Um, and we can only but evolve. 
Um, so I think what we need to be doing is be vulnerable and share our vulnerabilities with people as leaders so they can see this is normal. What you're going through is normal and that's okay. So kia ora, that's, that's my side of things. Just curious, how do, you, how do you hold the tension between perfection and getting a point across? Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, you can sit there like you were in that meeting, thinking of the right way to phrase something, trying to get it right. And then the moment is gone, as opposed to getting something out, even if it isn't necessarily the perfectly phrased way of, of saying something. Have you ever had that come up or? This is a, this is a consistent um, thing I think most of us go through. Um, I don't think we should always aim for perfection. I think we should aim for um, simplicity and clarity of point um, and timing. Is this the right time? Is this the hill that I, is this the hill I die on? No. Is this, is this a hill that I can aid in evolving into a mountain? Um, you know, I, I think this is variable and this is why we need to always consistently concentrate on the personal and professional development um, and also getting involved in those conversations where you fail uh, and then ensuring that we have um, self-reflection practices always in place. Because if we're always reflecting, we're always learning from our action and our interactions. Um, that's my thinking on it. I can go on about this for ages. Yeah that there's been a really strong thread and we, we had a couple emails, but there wasn't a huge amount of coordination here. So I think that just shows that there's some quality coming through from each of our panelists, that there is this theme about growing, getting better, learning. Um, and I'm reminded of a, a relative of mine. It was like my grandmother's cousin. And I got to know him when he was about 92 and, um, and he was still asking questions, still curious, still growing. And I said, I said to him, you know, like you're, you're pretty close to a hundred here. And he said, yeah, that's the old way. You're thinking in the old way. 70 is the new 40, you know, he's like, he had a completely different conception, which is lifetime learning really. Um, yeah. So feel free to drop more questions in there. I'm just curious if any of the panelists have a question or a reflection on anything that any of the other panelists have said. Um, Tim or Sina or El or Michael, any comments that you'd like to throw in, having heard what the others have said? Are you talking to me? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Sina. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, kia ora, Ali. I loved your quote at all. That was really, there was so much that was really relatable in there. And I, I just wanted to... Um, to, to reflect that I think showing vulnerability is a real sign of strength in, in a leader. And I think more of our leaders need to do that. Um, and I'm also interested in anything that you do around sharing vulnerabilities, you know, as, as part of your work day and how you sort of um, factor that into your practice. Um, I think this is part of also that authenticity thing as well. <laughs> um, I think I choose to be vulnerable um, in the majority of the discussions I have these days and um, in being honest, because I realized and going back to your point on relationship capital, um, it is about trust. And people have heard the sales pitches, they've seen the charming manipulators, they've they've been there, they've done that, they they everyone is searching for a degree of honesty um, a degree of honesty just honesty in general um, because we are building um, foundations um, and relationships um, and trust and as we move as a collective um, together and we are moving towards a collective kaupapa um, you know it, it, it does be, it does it, it is about the type of leader that's there um, who is willing to be themselves as well as show their real, their, their true colors so others can blend their colors in. I have no idea where I was going with that. And I'm just going to leave that right there. It's been a, it's been a long week and it's only Thursday. Yeah, I think the thing that kind of brings this all together, I, I love getting, I studied medieval history. So, you know, I like going backwards. You know, you look at the greatest, some of the greatest philosophers, I'm pretty sure it was Aristotle, you know, know thyself. Like, just know who you are. But, um, that's the hardest thing you'll ever do. 
which is why it's you know the hero's myth the journey that the, we'd rather sit and watch the however many 52 episodes of the star wars series and look at luke going on his journey rather than go and look at ourselves because i think it was 2014 i think it is university of virginia um sort of psychology psychology um uh, lab they got the grad students in they said right um so for this experiment we're going to lock you in this room for 10 minutes um you're going to be in this room with nothing but your own thoughts if however you want to exit before the 10 minutes is up you can self-administer an electric shock what percentage of people self-administered the electric shock it was in about the 80s percent so they, they weren't asked to challenge their thoughts or to listen to the thoughts. It was just sit in a room with nothing but your own thoughts. We can't even do that. And I think that is where I see, I mean, I, I come from the medical device industry. That's where I spent a large part of my career. And there's a really horrific documentary on Netflix called The Bleeding Edge, which exposes the uh, corruption. Like it, People kind of know the pharmaceutical industry is a little bit sketchy and, you know, people were, were giving pens to doctors and say, well, could you just maybe, you know, prescribe my drugs? The medical device industry is kind of a hundred times bigger and a hundred times less well known, and um, the, the amount of sort of corporate psychopathy that was at play, where people would companies were genuinely trying to sell products before they were fully approved for use in humans, and people were dying, but the companies were kind of like, "It's okay, we'll keep pushing because we need to get market share." It's like, have you people stopped to look at yourself for five minutes? Because I don't think you have. Because if you had, you'd maybe pick up on what you're doing is not so cool. And I think for me, that's that's the overarching thing for all humans is just get to know who you are and then work out. The, the ultimate purpose question is who could you be? Right, here I am as I am today. How have I have I how have I been created as this person? But who could I become? Like what is that north star that you could be? And I think that's that's the hard mahi that a lot of people don't want to do because it's hard. So there's some comments there, like Jen saying how much time is needed for reflection as well. And that kind of echoes what you're saying, Tim, which is, you know, actually taking time out and reflecting. And the problem is there's so much social media and there's so much, you know, urgent things that we need to look at. Um, yeah. I remember. I remember reading it. Oh, oh, I was just going to say, I'll let you go a second, but um, you know, Nelson Mandela, you know, in a prison cell for years and years and, and look at, you know, what he was able to discover about himself to then come out of it and lead a transformation. Um, you know, and, and Hazel's just put something there about Arthur Taylor as well, that, you know, he was 15 months straight in solitary. Like, yeah, it's pretty intense, but yeah, go ahead. But um, yeah, I remember running a purpose workshop for a group and afterwards, like one of the one of my take homes was go and get some time by yourself and just go and think about life. Like, who are you? Why, why are you who you are? Like, wh where do you want to be? And one person emailed me um, about a week later and said, look, I actually booked half a day off from work. And I went and sat on a hilltop and I took a, took a notebook and I just sat there. And she said um, she told a few of her friends about it and they all said she was crazy. So in the modern world, it's crazy for you to take half a day out of the 80,000 sort of hours of your adult working life to just sit and ponder about is it all on the right track and how, how am I doing? She was the crazy one. It says it all really. Yeah. We kind of talked about this about three weeks ago now on a, a podcast, didn't we? You and I talking about the modern world and things. So I'll put a link in the, in the notes here. Lovely. Michael, have you got any thoughts or any questions for others? We're, we're actually going to wrap up relatively soon because we want to keep it short and sweet, but yeah. So a couple of things. One is uh, recently I was I was actually on a on a big chat, and it was this big chat around authenticity, and it was it, it was actually posed as for people who have been told they're too much uh, in life, and uh, to turn down the dial on the volume a little bit with their authenticity. Um, so I jumped on it because I wanted to be a bit more dialing up. Uh, on my noise, you know, and it was kind of strange. And a lot of people probably think you probably don't need much more dialing up. Ironically, you know, what we what we see around this authenticity thing is, and, and for me, it's kind of strange. I've been asking this question, like, what is authenticity? What does it mean to be authentically me? You know, where the brakes are on, you know, where I put the brakes on myself with my own authenticity. And, you know, am I just constantly working towards being more authentically me as I go along? And then what does it mean? Uh, what is the cost of the authenticity? Um, I think there's almost a whole nother conversation around 
What does it mean to be authentically you? You know, um, yeah, I, I, I just think it's such a stunning subject. Yeah, that's great. And it fits in with what others have been saying. Um, yeah, this has really been good. I'm just looking at the chat. Does anything jump out to any of you panelists that you'd like to address? Uh, yep, there's one. There's one actually. Uh, remember, before I said, what was your uh, second question? It wasn't a second question. It was the statement of um, we're always communicating, and it can be whether we're in a room with one or whether we're in a large room. And I've just been pondering that uh, that conundrum. And I actually, I'll, I'll, the story is of one of my clients who I coached for a audience of over 900 people for an investment pitch, which they won, the best pitch of the night award, of course. Um, but I worked with them a lot around the idea of pitching from a big stage. You know, there's this massive emotional gap between you and the people you're speaking with because you're, you're up on a stage and all the lights, you can't see anything, which is kind of different. But the work we've been working, the stuff we've been working on recently has been intimate um, pitches with five people in the room. And uh, the conversations we've been having is like, that put me on stage with 900 anytime, that five people stuff, that freaks me out. And what I've noticed is the difference is a facilitational skill is missing, which we have to work on, which is telling people what's happening. So uh, we're going to do this. And then after that, we're going to have five minutes for questions. And then we can do this. And then we can do this. And that's the piece that's missing. But that's a whole different skill level from speaking on stage. And so I just wanted to come back on that, that, you know, there are so many different places where we're speaking in different ways, but they all require different skill sets. Um, presenting, pitching, public speaking, and facilitating, it's, it's huge. And yeah, we, we need to be taught how to do this. Yeah, well, that's been the message. It's come through on, I think, everybody, really, because it's all been about learning, growing, you know, improving ourselves. That's really yeah. awesome. Do any of you panelists have any last thoughts that you'd like to share before we finish up? Yeah, I, I did just want to quickly say something on reflection. So um, I'm not sitting in a meeting. So once again, that was Friday after a really long week. And I was like, come on, sort out what's going on, Ellie. Um, when I'm in a meeting, I'm focused in that meeting. And my reflection takes place generally post-meeting. Um, and, I, and I ensure that I, I do make that time. And if it's in the car, that, that's fine. If it's, um, if it's at home, if it's making my whānau kai, um, then I do it. But I, I, I think self-reflection is part of good self-awareness practice. And I believe um, it's, it's beneficial for all of us um, to do it. And if you can keep um, a diary or a journal in that space, reading back over your stuff from last year or last week's meeting is wonderful. It helps you keep track of yourself. Um, and it, uh, it's a highly valued practice. So um, my journal is my uh, OneDrive. So it goes with me wherever my phone or my tablet or um, if I'm at my PC. So just um, that, that's been invaluable to me. I find, I don't know if each of you have this, but I have certain places in the world that to me um, are thin places. And by thin places, I mean that there's kind of a, a closer connection with something bigger. <laughs> um, so for me, um, that is up in the Lewis Pass area, a place called Lake Daniels. I'm sure many of you have hiked in there. And it's just this amazing thing. You know, it's like a seven kilometer walk. You're going in and then you get there and there's this lake and the forest is right down to the edge of the lake. And it's quiet except for the birds. And there's thousands of birds up there. And for me, that's, um, yeah, I, I interviewed someone named Peter Beck, who had been the dean here at Christchurch Cathedral. And he talked about thin places, like places where there's a connection a, a place of connecting. So I guess my encouragement is to think, you know, where is that place for you? Where is that place that you could go and you could take a blank piece of paper and sit and just actually be still and reflect? And um, yeah, that's been kind of the thing that's come through. And it's making me think I need to book a day off and go for a, a drive up to the Lewis Pass. So that's really good. <laughs> well, I, 
Um, could, I, before, before you before you go, Stephen, can I just? There's one thing I'd love to come back on, which is just real quick. Um, yep. Selena, the the question, and I've I put it in the comments, but there's some really great, and this is for everyone around that interpersonal development, uh, or you know that. Uh, I, I ran a I ran a thing for the executive leadership team for Antarctica New Zealand, um, and it was pretty much on that subject, right? Like siloing and and getting people to 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 really integrate more into their whole selves and all that type of stuff. Um, I used a, a thing which I did, which included the thirty six questions that lead to interpersonal closeness, and it's by the work it's work by Arthur Aaron or Aaron Arthur Tim. You'll know the name. Um, I, I think it's. Aaron Arthur, but it's, it's research that was done in a lab on how to develop relationships through a series of elevating questions that get more and more uh, deeper and more personal as you go along. Um, it's incredible for building the dynamic between people um, and building trust and all that type of stuff. So check it out. If you, if you haven't heard of it, have a look at it. That's awesome. Thank you. We'll, we'll definitely in the show notes, we can put links to things. So let's find it and we can drop it in there. Yep. Yeah. Well, Charmaine, Simon Pierre, Jason, Kathy, Erica, Chrissy, uh, Claire, Steve, Mark, Trish, Hazel, Anita, Gavin, Paul, Val, Michael, and of course, Ellie, Sina, Tem, and Michael. Thank you so much for joining me on this first ever uh, live Seeds podcast panel episode. I've really had a lot of fun. I hope that it's been interesting for you. You've heard a variety of people's perspectives in a very short time frame. We've been here for basically one hour. Um, if I can ask one thing, it would be uh, when I share this, if this has been helpful for you, then would you consider sharing it as well? Um, I, I know you probably think I have a massive marketing team behind me, but it's it's actually just me. <laughs> um, so I'm going to take this home. I'm going to sit at the computer. I'm going to edit it. I'm going to add an intro and an outro. I'm going to create a little social media thing and I'm going to post it. Um, so if you're willing to join me as a tribe of people who are into this type of thing, um, I would really value it. Um, I view you all as unofficial ambassadors for Seeds podcast. Um, it's kind of a journey. It, it's, it's not an exclusive thing. I welcome anyone to join me and, and help to get the word out. Um, there's now 273 episodes. Today was episode 273. And it's just hit, I think, 120,000 or so listens across them all. So I get people now emailing and saying, I haven't met you yet, but I wanted to let you know that that episode really helped, which is pretty awesome. Um, so thank you all for joining me here today. Um, if you want to, there's a newsletter at theseeds.nz. Um, that's how I try to send out things like this. I think I probably will try to do another one of these at some point because it's been fun. So if you have a topic idea that you think would be good to gather some people together around, um, yeah, it's pretty easy. Technology allows it, doesn't it? Um, but I'm going to hit stop on recording and um, just want to say thank you so much, everybody, for listening and especially to our panelists for your insights. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that session. I know for me, Ellie, Tim, Sina, and Michael had some great insights to share, and I'm sure that you would have gotten something from them as well. Don't forget to check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog. And if you enjoyed this, why not share it? Until next time.